if you are North American, do you know more about Roman history or Cherokee history? Cherokee are closer to you geographically, and they make up the history of the lands you inhabit. You may be taught about the American Civil Rights Movement, but not the tribes that rode across the modern U.S. state of Georgia. I find that fascinating. Why would that be the case? Let's say you are a North American, but from non-European and non-African ancestry. Would you know more about, say, the U.S. Civil War than you would about, say, a war between tribes that traverse the lands that you currently are living on? And why? Both of those things are technically not part of your cultural history. But it's because two of the big three North American countries, the U.S. and Canada, Mexico being the third big North American country, are still European countries with large African populations, culturally, historically, and politically, if not geographically, of course. Meaning, whatever their narrative, i.e. whatever the European narrative, is also the North American narrative. In addition, it is not easy to just up and replace written records of things like, say, the civil rights movement with a rivalry between tribes because that rivalry between tribes may only exist in an oral tradition. Just like Roman history is not European history, okay, yes, because there's tons of Asian and African history in there too, it was ultimately nicked by the Western Europeans after the Renaissance. Likewise, North American history is not strictly European history either, nor is it African history. It was, likewise, nicked by the North Americans to fill a civilizational gap. So as long-time listeners may know, or guess, or maybe not know, I think all history is subjective, somewhat made up even. And writing stuff down does not make it factual. It just means you have some extra material to go on as a historian. It becomes incumbent on us, therefore, to ask what the hell happened to the North American tribes. The Cherokee are one of the indigenous peoples of the southwestern woodlands of the United States. And I said are because they still are around. Prior to the 18th century, they were concentrated in their homelands, in towns along river valleys of what is now bits of the U.S. states of North Carolina, Tennessee, South Carolina, Georgia, and Alabama. These days, they find themselves in land reservations thousands of miles away in the U.S. state of Oklahoma. The word Cherokee means principal people. Many theories, though all unproven, are bound about the origin of the name Cherokee. It may have originally been derived from one of the competitive tribes in the area, for instance, the Choctaw, meaning people who live in the mountains, and Choctaw Chilukikbi, meaning people who live in the cave country. The Cherokee did live along rivers in mountainous areas. Anthropologists and historians have two main theories on Cherokee origins. One is that the Cherokee 
and Iroquian-speaking peoples are relative latecomers to the southern region, who may have migrated in late prehistoric times from the northern areas that would have been around the Great Lakes region. But they are one singular tribe of North America. There's tons more. The Dakota, for example, are a Native American tribe and a First Nations band government in North America, meaning they exist in Canada and the U.S. They comprise two of the three main subcultures of the Sioux people and are typically divided into Eastern Dakota and the Western Dakota peoples. This East and West Dakota are two of the three groupings belonging to the Sioux Nation, also known as Dakota in a broad sense, the third being the Lakota. The three groupings speak dialects that are still relatively mutually intelligible. This is referred to as a common language, the Dakota Lakota, or Sioux. And Sioux is spelled S-I-O-U-X. Before the 17th century, the Santee Dakota lived around Lake Superior, with territories in present-day northern Minnesota and Wisconsin. They gathered wild rice, hunted woodland animals, and used canoes to fish. Wars with the Obijawi throughout the 1700s pushed the Dakota into southern Minnesota, where the western Dakota and Teton, i.e. the Lakota, were residing. In the 1800s, the Dakota signed treaties with the United States, ceding much of their land in Minnesota. Failure of the United States to make treaty payments on time as well as low food supplies led to the Dakota War of 1862, which resulted in the Dakota being exiled from Minnesota to numerous reservations in Nebraska, North and South Dakota, and in Canada. After 1870, the Dakota people began to return to Minnesota, creating the present-day reservations that exist in the state in 2022 as we speak. The Dakota maintained many separate tribal governments, scattered across several reservations and in communities in North America. In the Dakotas, in Minnesota, in Nebraska, and Montana in the United States, and in Manitoba and southern Saskatchewan in Canada. The earliest known European record of the Dakota identified them in three U.S. states, in Minnesota, Iowa, and in Wisconsin. After the introduction of the horse in the early 18th century, the Sioux dominated larger areas of land, from present-day central Canada to the Platte River, from Minnesota to the Yellowstone River, including the Powder River country. Dakota and Cherokee are just but two tribes. All the current immigrants in the U.S. and Canada say, and descendants of immigrants, be they black, white, Asian, or from other parts of the Americas, all of you, even with the best of intentions, and those of you who may be social justice warriors with even better technical sense of entitlement, you are on somebody else's land. And the fact that they had to make way is the reason you have any prosperity whatsoever. This 
isn't a moral situation, but a practical one. Would you now say move away to Africa or Europe or Asia and give up the life that you have in North America? No. And if you're not going to, no matter how much empathy that you could demonstrate towards these red Indians or First Nations or Native Americans, talking about it and not actually doing anything is quite hypocritical. But here's the question. Is it a good or a bad thing? Well, it's not great for them, but as it turns out, it's great for everyone else. Life, history, and politics is full of tough injustices. Some, like the Holocaust, get pointed out every time through history. Others, like this, get swept under the carpet because even the most hardened supporter of minority rights knows that no one cares and their own freedom to espouse minority rights depends on a specific minority having their rights squashed. BLM don't give a hoot about Dakota and they don't need to. According to the oral histories of many of the indigenous peoples, they have been living on this continent, the Americas, and specifically here, North America, since their genesis, described by a wide range of traditional creation stories. Other tribes have stories that recount migrations across long tracts of land and a great river believed, we think, to be the Mississippi River. Genetic and linguistic data connect the indigenous peoples of this continent with ancient Northeast Asians. Archaeological and linguistic data has enabled scholars to discover some of the migrations within the Americas. The Gold Archaeological Site is an extensive, multi-component site located in central Texas in the United States. It's about 40 miles north of the city of Austin. It bears evidence of almost continuous human occupation starting at around 16,000 years ago, making it one of the few archaeological sites in the Americas at which compelling evidence has been found for human occupation dating to before the appearance of the Clovis culture. The Paisley Caves Complex is a system of four caves in an arid, desolate region of south-central Oregon, United States' northwestern region. Scientific excavations and analysis since 2002 have uncovered substantial and new discoveries there. These include materials with the oldest DNA evidence of human habitation in North America. The DNA radiocarbon dated back 14,000 plus years ago. The aforementioned Clovis culture is a megafauna hunting culture. It is primarily identified by the use of fluted spare points. Artifacts from this culture were first excavated in 1932 near the town of Clovis in the U.S. state of New Mexico. The Clovis culture ranged over much of North America and appeared in South America as well. The culture is identified by the distinctive Clovis point a flint spear point with a notched flute by which it was inserted into a shaft. 
the dating of Clovis materials has been by association with animal bones and by the use of carbon dating methods. Recent re-examinations of Clovis materials using improved carbon dating methods produced results of around 11,000 and 10,000 radiocarbon years before the present, meaning about 9,000 to about 8,000 BCE. The Folsom tradition was characterized by the use of Folsom points as a projectile tip and activities known from kill sites where slaughter and butchering of bison took place. Folsom tools were left behind between 9,000 and 8,000 BCE as well. Nardene-speaking peoples entered North America starting around 8,000 BCE, reaching the Pacific Northwest by 5,000 BCE, and from there migrating along the Pacific coast and into the interior. Linguistics, anthropologists, and archaeologists believe their ancestors compromised a separate migration into North America later than the first Paleo-Indians. They migrated into Alaska and northern Canada, south along the Pacific coast into the interior of modern Canada and south to the Great Plains and the American Southwest. Moving to the Archaic period, or what is known as the Archaic period in North America, which is assumed to last around 8,000 to 1,000 BC, since the 1990s, archaeologists have explored and dated 11 middle Archaic sites in present-day Louisiana and Florida, which early cultures built complexes with multiple network earthwork mounds. They were societies of hunter-gatherers rather than settled agriculturists, believed necessary according to the theory of Neolithic revolution to sustain a large village over a long period. The prime example is Watson Break in northern Louisiana, whose 11 mound complex is dated to 3500 BCE, making it the oldest dated site in North America. For such a complex construction, it is nearly 2,000 years older than the Poverty Point site. Construction of the mounds went on for 500 years until the site was abandoned about 2,800 BCE, probably due to changing environmental conditions. The formative classic and post-classic stages are sometimes incorporated together as the post-archaic period, which runs roughly from about 1000 BCE onwards. Sites and cultures include the Adena, Old Copper, Woodland, Fort Ancient, Hopewell tradition, as well as the Mississippian culture. Numerous pre-Columbian societies were sedentary, such as the Pubilo peoples, the Madan, the Hadistas, and others established large settlements, even cities, such as Chokia in what is now Illinois. The Ikoi people, or the Ikoi League of Nations, or People of the Long House, was a politically advanced, we believe, democratic, we believe, society. After 1492, European exploration and colonization of the Americas revolutionized how the old and the new worlds, what we assume to be old and new, perceived themselves. Many of the first major contacts were Florida and the Gulf Coast by Spanish explorers. Some scholars 
have designated this point in history as the beginning of the age of capital. One can only imagine why. From the 16th through to the 19th centuries, the population of these Native Americans, First Nations, Red Indians, sharply declined. Most mainstream scholars believe that among the various contributing factors, Endemic diseases was the overwhelming cause of population decline of Native Americans because of their lack of immunity to diseases brought from Europe. It is difficult to estimate the number of pre-Columbian Native Americans who were living in what is the United States. Estimates range from as low as 2 million to as high as 18 million. In other words, it's a shot in the dark nobody knows. By 1800, the native population of the present-day U.S. had declined to around 600,000, and only 250,000, it is assumed, remained in the 1890s. Chickenpox and measles, endemic but rarely fatal among Europeans, although it was introduced from Asia, often proved deadly and fatal to the natives of North America. In 1634... Andrew White of the Society of Jesus established a mission in what is now the U.S. state of Maryland on the East Coast. And the purpose of the mission started through an interpreter to the chief of an Indian tribe there to extend civilization and instruction to his ignorant race and show them the way to heaven. End quote. White's diaries report that by 1640 a community had been founded which they named St. Mary's and the Indians were sending their children there in inverted commas to be educated among the English. End quote. This included the daughter of the Piscataway Indian chief Tayak which exemplifies not only a school for Indians but either a school only for girls or early co-ed school systems. Through the mid-17th century, the Beaver Wars were fought over the fur trade between the Iroquois and the Hurons, the northern Anglo-Queans and their French allies. During the war, the Iroquois destroyed several large tribal confederacies, including the Huron, Erie and Shawnee, and became dominant in the region and enlarged their territory. Between 1754 and 1763, Many Native American tribes were involved in the French and Indian War, also the Seven Years' War. Those involved in the fur trade tended to ally with the French forces against the British colonial militias. The British had made fewer allies, but it was joined by some tribes that wanted to prove assimilation and loyalty in support of treaties to preserve their territories. After European explorers reached the West Coast in the 1770s, Smallpox rapidly killed at least 30% of Northwest Coast Native Americans. For the next 80 to 100 years, smallpox and other diseases devastated the Native populations in the region. The United States, once created, was eager to expand, develop farming and settlements in new areas, and satisfy the land hunger of settlers from places like New England, including these new immigrants. The national government initially sought to purchase Native American land via treaty. The states and settlers were frequently at odds with this policy. 
the U.S. policy towards Native Americans continued to evolve after the American Revolution. George Washington and Henry Knox believed that Native Americans were equal, but that their society was inferior. Washington formulated a policy to encourage a civilizing process. Washington had a six-point plan for civilization, which included 1. Impartial justice towards Native Americans. 2. Regulated buying of Native American lands. 3. Promotion of commerce. 4. Promotion of experiments to civilize or improve Native American society. 5. Presidential authority to give presents. 6. Punishing those who violated Native American rights. In the late 18th century, reformers, starting with Washington and Knox, supported educating Native children, both children and adults actually, in an effort to civilize or otherwise assimilate Native Americans into larger Latin Christian society, as opposed to relegating them to reservations. The Civilization Fund Act of 1819 promoted this civilization policy by providing funding to societies mostly religious, who worked towards Native American improvement. As American expansion continued, Native Americans resisted settlers' encroachment in several regions of the new nation, from the northwest to the southeast and then in the west, as settlers encountered Native American tribes of the Great Plains east of the Mississippi River in an inter-tribal army led by Teshmusa, a Shawanese chief, who fought a number of engagements in the Northwest during the period 1811-1812, known as Tichmusha's War. During the War of 1812, Tichmusha's forces allied themselves with the British. After Tichmusha's death, the British ceased to aid the Native Americans south and west of Upper Canada, and American expansion proceeded with little resistance after that point, westwards. Conflicts in the Southeast, including the Creek War and Seminole Wars, both that before and after the Indian removals of most members of the five so-called five civilized tribes. In the 1830s, U.S. President Andrew Jackson signed the Indian Removal Act of 1830, a policy of relocating Indians from their homeland to Indian territory and reservations in surrounding areas to open their lands up for non-native settlements. This resulted in the Trial of Tears. We'll get to the trial of tears in a minute, but the new law authorized the president to negotiate with Southern, including Mid-Atlantic Native American tribes, for their removal to federal territory west of the Mississippi River in exchange for white settlement of their ancestral lands. The act was signed by Andrew Jackson, and it was strongly enforced under his administration and that of Martin Van Ren which extended this until 1841. The act was strongly supported by southern and northwestern populations, but was opposed by native tribes and the Whig Party. The Cherokee worked together to stop this relocation, but were unsuccessful. They were eventually forcibly removed by the United States government in a march to the west that later became known as this Trial of Tears, which has been described as an act of genocide by many because so many died during removals. The Trial of Tears was essentially a forced displacement and ethnic cleansing 
of approximately 60,000 Native Americans of the so-called five civilized tribes between 1830 and 1850 by the government of the West. Tribal members moved gradually with complete migration occurring over a period of nearly a decade. Members of the so-called five civilized tribes are the Cherokee, the Creek, the Seminole, the Chickasaw, and the Choctaw nations, including thousands of their black slaves. Yes, you heard that right. They're black slaves. Such are the ironies of history. The relocated peoples suffered from exposure, disease, and starvation while en route to their newly designated Indian Reserve. Thousands died from disease before reaching their destinations or shortly after. In July 1845, the New York newspaper editor John L. O'Sullivan coined the phrase Manifest Destiny as the design of providence, supporting the territorial expansion of the United States. Manifest destiny had serious consequences for the Native American tribes, since continental expansion for the U.S. took place at the cost of their occupied lands. A justification for the policy of conquest and subjugation of the indigenous peoples emanated from the stereotyped perceptions of all Native Americans as merciless Indian savages. And that, by the way, is described in the U.S. Declaration of Independence itself. The Indian Appropriations Act of 1851 set the precedent for modern-day Native American reservations through allocating funds to move Western tribes onto reservations since there were no more lands available for relocation. Native American nations on the plains in the West continued armed conflict with the U.S. throughout the 19th century through that was called the Indian Wars. This, guys, is what the Cowboys versus Red Indian areas were all about. Notable conflicts in this period include the Dakota War, the Great Sioux War, Snake War, Colorado War, and Texas Indian Wars, expressing the frontier anti-Indian sentiment. Theodore Roosevelt believed the Indians were destined to vanish under the pressure of Latin Christian civilization, starting in an 1886 lecture, and I quote, I don't go so far as to think that the only good Indians are dead Indians, but I believe nine out of ten are, and I shouldn't like to inquire too closely into the case of the tenth, end quote. During the U.S. Civil War, Native Americans served in both the Union and the Confederate military. At the outbreak of the war, for example, the minority party of the Cherokees gave its allegiance to the Confederacy, while originally the majority party went for the North. Native Americans fought, knowing they might jeopardize their own independence, unique cultures, and ancestral lands if they ended upon the losing side of the Civil War. After the Indian Wars in the late 19th century, the government established Native American boarding schools, initially run primarily by or affiliated with Christian missionaries. At this time, American society thought that Native American children needed to be accustomed to general society. The boarding school mindset and experience was a total immersion in modern American society, but it could 
proved traumatic to children who were forbidden to speak their native languages. Ultimately, they were taught Christianity and not allowed to practice their native religions, and in numerous other ways forced to abandon their Native American identities. Ishii, who was born in 1861 and died in 1916, was the last known member of the Yashi people from present-day California. The, st- the rest of the Yashi, as well as members of their parent tribe, the Yana, were killed in the California genocide of the 19th century. Ishii, who was widely acclaimed as the last wild Indian in America, lived most of his life isolated from modern American culture. In 1911, aged 50, he emerged at a barn and coral two miles from downtown Oroville, which is still in the modern U.S. state of California. Ishii was taken in by anthropologists at the University of California in Berkeley, who both studied him and hired him as a janitor. He lived most of his remaining five years in a university building in San Francisco. His life was depicted and discussed in multiple films and books, notably the biographical account Ishii in Two Worlds, published by Theodora Koreba in 1961. American Indians today in the United States have all the rights guaranteed in the U.S. Constitution, can vote in elections, and run for political office. Controversies remain over how much of the federal government has due restriction over tribal affairs, sovereignty, and cultural practices. What was called Indian termination is a phase describing United States policies relating to Native Americans from the mid-1940s to the mid-1960s. It was shaped by a series of laws and practices with the intent of assimilating Native Americans into mainstream American society. Cultural assimilation of Native Americans was not new. The belief that indigenous people should abandon their traditional lives and become what the government considered civilized had been the basis of policy for centuries. What was new, however, was the sense of urgency that, with or without consent, tribes must be terminated and begin to live as Americans. To that end, the U.S. Congress set about ending the special relationship between tribes and the federal government. In practical terms, the policy ended the federal government's recognition of sovereignty of tribes, trusteeship over Indian reservations, and the exclusion of the state's laws applicable to Native persons. From the government's perspective, Native Americans were to become tax-paying U.S. citizens subject to state and federal taxes, as well as laws from which they had previously been exempt. The Indian Relocation Act of 1956 was intended to encourage Native Americans in the U.S. to leave Indian reservations and their traditional lands to assimilate into the general populace in urban areas and to weaken community and tribal ties as part of the Indian termination policy. Oddly, the final termination policy sounds bizarrely similar to the final solution uh, that the Nazis had in Germany. Anyhow, I digress. Speaking of World War II, by the way, some 44,000 Native Americans served in the United States military during 
or two, described as the first large-scale exodus of indigenous peoples from reservations since the removals of the 19th century. The men's service with the U.S. military in international conflict was a turning point in Native American history. The resulting increase in contact with the world outside of the reservation system brought profound changes to Native American culture. The war, said the U.S. Indian Commissioner in 1945, caused the greatest disruption of Native life since the beginning of the reservation era, affecting the habits, views, and economic well-being of tribal members. In 1968, the government enacted the Indian Civil Rights Act. This gave tribal members most of the protections against abuses by tribal governments that the Bill of Rights poured into all U.S. citizens had prior. In 1975, the U.S. government passed the Indian Self-Determination Education Assistance Act, making the culmination of 15 years of policy changes. It resulted from American Indian activism the civil rights movement and community development aspects of Lyndon Johnson's social programs of the 1960s. The act ultimately recognized the right and need of Native Americans for self-determination. It marked the U.S. government's turn away from the 1950s policy of termination of the relationship between tribes and the government. In 2009, an apology to Native peoples of the United States was included in the Defense Appropriations Act. Where else could that be? It stated that the U.S. apologizes on behalf of the people of the United States to all Native peoples for the many instances of violence, maltreatment, and neglect inflicted on Native peoples by citizens of the United States. These days, some Indian, or should I say Native American people, have been elected to high office. That said, poverty is still rife among many reservations as well. Not everything is great. However, that is all part of history of the peoples of North America. That often gets scant mention in many history books because the pedigree of the people who currently occupy the US and Canada as a majority are mostly of European and African descent, and that's how they look, and that's their culture. There's nothing wrong with that. But... It is a history of the territory. It is a history of the land. And someone somewhere should be taking stock of this and should be taught a lot more. But it isn't. And that's just how some of these things happen. With the arrival of a lot of non-Latin uh, Christian people to places like the US and Canada, I actually interestingly think that a lot of those cultures will see a revival. I personally think a lot of Asian thought and native thought have similarities in oral traditions, and a lot of people may find it attractive, those who haven't got traditional Latin Christian backgrounds specifically. Anyhow, these are important, but not be all and end all. Interestingly, a lot of the names that are used in North America today are still words that were invented or created by the indigenous populations. Things like Dakota, Illinois, Manitoba, Mississauga. These are names given by the natives and they exist today and there are many other words too. 
Thank you for taking the time to listen to the Alternative History Podcast once again. Thank you so very much. Thank you.